Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. So we're talking about Daniel chapter 7. A uh, great story that uh, Josh told Jonathan and I, my son, we took a trip down to Brazil five or six years ago, and uh, Lily was one of my favorites also. She moves between genres of music so seamlessly. She sings these traditional hymns. She just belts out these traditional hymns. It's amazing. And then she starts singing these queen songs. And so this just back and, and forth, and so it's, uh, it's quite a time. All right, Daniel 7. This is not as complex as it might seem initially. Today, I want to talk about confidence and how we can gain some confidence in God through Daniel chapter 7. And so we're going to try to break this down because it is quite simple. God wants us to be confident. I looked up the word confidence this past week in the dictionary. Here is what it says. Firm trust. God wants us to be able to have a firm trust in him. It means the belief that you can rely on someone or something. So what's been happening to Daniel, everybody? We're now in the seventh chapter. We've in it now seven weeks. We've been seeing that Daniel, every week, Daniel chapter one, his confidence grows a little bit more because of what he went through. Remember the whole food thing? I won't go through each chapter, the food thing. And then there was the dream in Daniel two, which has a lot to do with Daniel seven. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar and all that happened to him. And Last week, uh, Derek talked about Daniel in the lion's den. So he's got this growing amount of confidence in God. It's very important that we have confidence in God so that we're not blown off course. I'll never forget my first talk on confidence. I was about 13 years old, and I was at church. I had a powerful conversation one night at church about confidence, and I will never forget it to this day. At church, we had, like I said, about 13, we had a new kid come to church uh, this night. He'd been a couple weeks, and this kid was kind of a bully. And so he was bullying a lot of people. Uh, verbally, a little bit physical, but mostly it was verbal bullying, intimidation of kids. And so this particular night at church, he decided that he was going to turn his attention on me and bully me around a little bit. And he was, and I wasn't doing, doing so good handling that back. And I remember a friend of mine, Ray, was standing next to me. And so finally, in the midst of kind of the height of the bullying this guy was doing to me, I just turned and looked at Ray, and Ray just kind of shook his head kind of in you know, what is wrong with you, John? And he didn't say a word. He just grabbed this kid by the collar. He drove him down the hall as fast as he could, threw him into the bathroom, slams him up against the urinal. And the kid is just there, just freaked out. And Ray just looks at me because I'm following the whole way. He says, John, it's all about confidence. All about confidence. I'll never forget that. Powerful message that Ray gave. I've got this pulpit. It's actually off center. Let me, here we go. That's better. All right. So it's all about confidence. God wants us to have confidence. And the Bible talks about it. Look, look, consider these verses, all right? Psalm 27. These armies are surrounding this person, the psalmist, right? It says, though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will know no fear. Even if they attack me, I remain confident. Now, who is the psalmist confident in? That's the question. Check this out. Philippians 1.6. Who, who is confident? Who is Paul confident in, in, Saul, in Philippians 1.6? It's being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Who is the confidence in? Jesus, Luke 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. And I'll allow you to go and read that parable for yourself because it's an excellent parable in Luke chapter 18. Who's the confidence in there? 
we see that the psalmist and we see that Paul is talking about having a God confidence. And what Jesus is saying is there are some who have a self-confidence. He's saying God confidence is a good thing. Self-confidence isn't necessarily a good thing. It's better to have a God confidence than a self-confidence when your confidence is in God. How many times are you dealing with something in life, a storm in life, a financial issue, a health issue, a relational issue, some kind of problem you're facing? And the bullies of life, right, the bullies of life come and they rock you back up on your heels and you say, I can't do it. Well, what the message there is, yeah, you can't do it, but God can. The last thought that goes through my mind every single Sunday that I'm speaking, right before I stand up and speak, the last thought is, you can't do it. You cannot do this. And then it's answered by a thought, a message in my mind says, yes, but God can. What are you facing and what will you face in the days ahead that you can't do but God can do through you? What thing? What financial problem? What physical problem? What relational problem? Something that you can't do but God can do. This is what we want to talk about today, how we can have a growing confidence in God. Let's pray. Lord, we have come to what some people say is the most important chapter in the entire Old Testament. And it speaks about confidence. Father, there must be some reason that we are here today to hear this message from Daniel 7. So then, Lord, whatever you want to do in our lives, whatever we need to hear, however we need to respond, help us to hear it, help us to be open to it, to allowing your word to seep into our hearts and our minds and to make the difference that you want it to make. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Confidence in God. So we read in Daniel 7.28. That's the last verse of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says these words. He says, Daniel was deeply troubled by, he says, I'm deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Daniel's confidence wasn't rocked, but what he had seen in this chapter that we have just read a piece of was so terrifying to him, so frightening that he turned pale. Now, he's used to other people turning pale. He's used to other people's worlds being rocked. But what he has seen in here has been so powerful, he is terrified by it. The question is, why? Why did this rock him so much? This dream... And Daniel chapter 7 is extremely similar. It's basically the same thing told a different way as we already studied in Daniel chapter 2. It did not freak him out in Daniel chapter 2. Why is it freaking him out here? All right, let me give you something to consider. Because in Daniel chapter 2, we talked about five kingdoms. And today, again, five kingdoms. It's five earthly, worldly kingdoms. Daniel chapter 2 was given from man's perspective. So this big statue, okay, if you remember from Daniel 2, was seen. And this big statue had four different parts to it, and then finally a fifth part came into and destroyed all the rest. The first part of it was, says, the head was made of gold, and the chest of silver, and then bronze, and then iron. That's from man's perspective. So man looks at the kings of the world, right? The nations, like the United States of America. 
or England or Russia or Japan, right? You look at these nations and you look at their power and when they're the superpower, because at that time we're talking about the nation that was the superpower of the world. So from man's perspective, when you have that much money, when it's gold and it's silver and it's dazzling, you're like, whoa, I want some of that. When, when the palaces are the most incredible things in the world, you're like, this is really cool. Babylon was the most advanced city of its day. When people went there, they said, this place is awesome. It's absolutely incredible. So from man's perspective, the kingdoms of the world are phenomenal. They're rich beyond belief. They're powerful. They're enticing. You want a piece of that. Who doesn't want to ride around in Learjets all day and be on yachts all the time and be at the best resorts in the world or have your own private island? This is what we're talking about. Does that make sense? That's man's perspective on the kingdom of the world. Now, here comes God's perspective. God's perspective on the kingdoms of the world in Daniel chapter 7, he doesn't look at them as a statue made of gold and silver. How does he look at them? Vicious beasts who are bloodthirsty, who are hungry for power, who are abusive. The final beast says its teeth are made of iron. Whoa, what kind of beast is that? This is the way God looks at it. And that's why Daniel's like, he saw tremendous hurt, pain, and abuse from these superpowers that came into play. That's why it's such a huge difference. There's one other thing I need to explain to you here. You might be saying, because Hosea started off a second ago in Daniel 7, 1. He says, now in the first year of King Belshazzar. You might be saying, wait a minute, John. Whoa. Didn't we cover that two weeks ago when we went through Daniel 5? I thought we got rid of the guy. I thought he was dead. I thought he died. Here's the chronology of Daniel. It confused me for years, but again, it's something very, very simple. The first six chapters follows basically a narrative, very little prophecy, narrative story chronologically through the life of Daniel, and he dies sometime in his 80s. So in Daniel chapter 5, you know, he was in his late 60s. When you start Daniel chapter 7, as we're starting today, roll the clock back. Roll the, we start a whole new chronology, and you pick up Daniel starting in chapter 7. Again, he's 67 years old, okay? That's all this to it. So you, Belshazzar has not been resurrected from the dead. All that is going on here is we're rolling the clock back because a new chronology, because Daniel 7 to 12, these chapters are apocalyptic. They're prophetic. And so he gives us a whole new time clock. So you only got to do this once. We're starting over again. Daniel was in his mid-80s last week when Derek talked about in the lion's den. Now he's 67. Wouldn't it be cool to do that? Wouldn't it be cool to roll 20 years back on your life? That's all we're doing here. That's all we're doing. Now, I need to say one other thing before I get into these four beasts and then talk about the fifth kingdom. Why does the dream happen? Why does it happen here in the first year of King Belshazzar's. And here's the reason it happens. Because the Israel, Israelites, their confidence was completely rocked. You ever had your confidence rocked? You don't have to raise your hand. You ever had your confidence in God rocked? You ever had your confidence in life rocked? Have the bullies of life on your spiritual playground ever just wreaked havoc upon you? Well, the Israelites, their confidence was completely rocked. Why? Well, everybody, their identity was in their temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians. It's gone. Their city, Jerusalem, destroyed. Now they've been about 50 years living as slaves. All this destroyed. And who's coming to power here? Belshazzar. Who is Belshazzar? Belshazzar's dad was Nabonidus. How did Nabonidus come to power? Nabonidus came to power because there was a king in Babylon who was just a mere child. And Nabonidus conspired against him and beat that little kid to death. That's a really good guy. Just beat him to death so bad. And he took over power. 
And now Nabonidus has been power for three years and he decides to make his son co-regent because Nabonidus likes to travel. He makes him co-regent. And Belshazzar seemingly has tremendous disdain for the Jewish people. Now we see that because he kind of gets rid of Daniel. Tremendous disdain. So put yourself, you're an Israelite. You're a slave in Babylon. Your temple's destroyed. All your identity is gone. And now a king comes to power who absolutely hates you. Does that rock your confidence at all? You ever had somebody who's just always against you, always has something negative to say about you? How do you feel when you walk into their presence? Do you like that? And so here they are. Their confidence is being shaken at an all-time low. So what does God come along and do? God comes along and does this, everybody. He says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the future with the kingdoms of the world. And then as it unfolds over the next couple hundred years and you watch it unfold, your confidence is going to grow as it unfolds because it's going to happen in exact and in amazing detail, just as I said. Now, all of this that I'm going to share with you in the next few moments, it says it in the Bible. This is great. Sometimes the Bible says stuff and then the Bible verifies it itself. And there's a lot of times when the Bible says stuff and it makes these prophetic predictions right these things and outside of the bible through outside sources through other historians is yep that's exactly the way it happened so this was said hundreds of years before this ever took place and secular history comes along and says yep that's exactly how it happened and it happened in amazing detail and when that takes place and we see that and we grasp it and we understand it it helps our confidence to grow in awesome ways so here we go let's just break this down again it's very simple beast number one all right So verse number four says it this way. Daniel seven, verse number four says the first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle. All right. So what's the deal with all the beasts? Okay. so don't today, don't we associate certain animals with certain nations of the world? Who is the United States of America associated with when it comes to an animal? Anybody want to venture? Ah, the bald eagle, right? England. He said nothing. Our favorite. (laughs) British citizen right here sat here stumped. How about Canada? Our friends to the north, they are the maple leaf. (laughs) Is the maple leaf an animal? I don't. All right. Beaver. We'll go with beaver for today. It's the beaver. How about Russia? The great Russian bear. There you go. So when they dug up the ruins of Babylon, what do you think they found from 2,500 years ago, they found all these statues of lions with wings on their back. Because in those days, now you might say, what is all this gobbledygook with beasts? Guys, it's just like today. So when somebody reads this, oh, the lion with the wings, he's talking about Babylon. This is history we're talking about here. Simple, solid, not mysterious, not nutty. It's just simple. So we find all these lions with wings on the back. So uh, where did we leave off? So I saw this lion. It had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off. It was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given. Now, if you've been here for the past couple weeks, you know what? Daniel chapter 4. What happened to King Nebuchadnezzar? He went through. How did Daniel know that? He went through something, a psychosis called boanthropy, where he acted like a cow. For a period of his life, he went insane. Google it today. If you weren't here a few weeks ago, Google it. Boanthropy. See what you come up with. How did he know that? Because God told him that. And so what happened to that? There's two physical characteristics. Your hair grows like 
an eagle's feather, your hair does like, and your claw, your fingernails go like the claws of a bird. That's what happened. So what's he talking about here? At the end of the time, and Nebuchadnezzar went through this, it says that he stood back up, he lifted his eyes to heaven, and he humbled himself before Almighty God. And a heart of a man was given back to him. We're talking about Babylon. It's as simple as that. What's the next one? Beast number two here that we're talking about is the Medo-Persian Empire. Let's read it. It's in verse number five, and this is what it says. And there before me was a second beast. So you got beast number one, and then he's followed by beast number two takes over the kind of the superpower of the world. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. This is not Russia. It's Medo-Persia. All right. Looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides. Check this out now. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, check this, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Wow. Graphic. This is why Daniel's really freaked out about this. Eat your fill of flesh. So who are we talking about? We're talking about Medo-Persia. It's raised up on one side like a bear. Like it's getting ready to attack. And also one side, it's lopsided. One side is stronger than the other. So the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persian side of it was much stronger than the Mede side of it. So this is what's being spoken of here. It had three ribs in its mouth. And do you know this? History tells us that that kingdom had three major military conquests. Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon. The three ribs in its mouth. That's what history tells us. And this is what is predicted hundreds of years before it ever takes place. It says, eat all of your fill of flesh. To this time in history, no superpower of the world, no nation, no kingdom had controlled as much territory, as much flesh, if you will, as the Medo-Persian Empire. That's beast number two. Here comes superpower number three. Who takes them out? Who takes the Mede and Persian Empire out? Anybody know? Who took them out historically? Does anybody know who ran through that whole section of the world? Alexander the Great, Greece. So it's this at verse number six. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like what thing? A leopard. And on its back, it had four wings, like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. It's a leopard with four wings. There's two major characteristics of a leopard. Number one, they're lightning fast. Now, this one, lightning fast leopard, was a souped-up leopard because it had four extra wings on its back like a turbocharger. So already the leopard's fast, and we're just going to make it even faster. And what did Alexander the Great do? In four years' time, everybody, he ruled the world. Four years' time and dies by the time he's 33 years old, right? He put cleats on his soldiers' shoes so they could run faster. He blitzed his way through. So we talk about the great German Blitzkrieg, right? You ever heard of that from World War II? Well, they didn't start it. Alexander the Great started it. He believed in breaking an enemy's lines as quickly as he could and then destroying them that way. That's exactly what he did. And he ran through that area of the world. And the Bible says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a leopard. It's going to be a souped-up leopard, and it's going to fly through this area of the world, and it's going to troll everything. And it's going to have four heads. Four heads. What does that mean? Well, when he dies at the age of 33, Alexander the Great, he dies in Babylon at the age of 33, four of his generals take charge. Now, we'll see more of this in Daniel chapter 8, but this is all we'll say about it here. Oh, I'll say one last thing. The other major characteristic, I already told you the first one, was speed. The second characteristic of a leopard is an insatiable thirst for blood. Love blood. And we're told, legend tells us this, that Alexander the Great, when he pushes his army all the way to India, he wanted to keep going. He wasn't ready to stop. He wanted to keep going. And his army was ready to have a mutiny on it. He said, we can't take this. <laughs> We've just been 
we've been on turbocharge for a long time. So he's ready for a mutiny. So he's like, okay, that's it. And he says he gets on the ground and he starts crying. Why? Because he's like a kid. He wanted more blood. He wanted more territory. He wasn't done. He, he lived to fight. And when he knew the fight was over, he died within a year. That's beast number three. Beast number four. Now, put Rome down there, but you might want to put a question mark next to it because there's a lot of controversy about just which kingdom of the world this is. Let's read it. Let's talk about it a second. Let's make some practical applications after this. It says, after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast. It's terrifying. It was frightening and very powerful. Now, did you notice something right there? No animal was associated with it. What Daniel is seeing, he has no zoological category to put this thing in. The fourth beast frightens Daniel more than anything else. He is freaked out by what he sees. This is the largest, most powerful, most terrifying, most frightening animal of all the others. He says, after that, my vision, I looked before me, fourth beast. Terrifying and frightening, very powerful. It had large, look at this, what animal do you know has iron teeth? It had iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled them underfoot, whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. What's different about Rome? Why do we think that most people feel this is the Roman Empire? Why do we feel that way? Because the Babylonian Empire lasted like 70 years. The Medes and Persians, about 200. Greece, about 200 years. How long did Rome rule and reign? 500 years. And the territory they covered was larger than anybody. The world had never seen anything like this. Something this big and this powerful and terrifying. So when Babylon went in and took over areas of the world, they did not crush culture. They did not come to seek to crush that culture. When Rome went into a culture, they just demolished it. They crushed it. The iron boots of Rome. I mean, they just destroyed people. And it was frightening. And so Daniel sees this. He says, man, this animal has iron teeth. It's trampling everything everywhere. The biggest, most powerful, um, most frightening beast that he saw. It's longevity and crushing and all that. It was ruthless. Here is the kingdom, everybody, that tortured and crucified Jesus Christ. Now, here's, I just want to say a little something why I think actually it is Rome and why I think there will be at some point in time a reviving of something that has to do with the Roman Empire, whether it's philosophical or, I don't know, geographical, I don't know. Each of these kingdoms suffered judgment. They suffered judgment by the next kingdom that rose up. Rome just fizzled out. Does anybody remember, is anybody old enough to remember when President Reagan was shot? Anybody remember old enough President Reagan was shot? I remember that they interviewed somebody that day, and I can't remember who it was, but he said this when talking about the gentleman that shot president said when you shoot the president of the united states you will never see the light of day again in other words this guy will never get out of prison i know that's in big controversy today right but he said that i said ah, never forget that let me tell you something rome fizzled out off the scene when you crucify and torture the son of god you don't get to fizzle out off of the earth without paying severe judgment you don't get to do that they have not been crushed, in my opinion. And there will come a day, in my opinion, this is why I believe it's Rome, 
when there will be some kind of reviving of the Roman Empire and they will be judged for what they did because it was the hands of Roman soldiers that the Son of Almighty God was crucified and tortured and you don't get off hook that easily. They'll be crushed one day. That's my opinion and it is very debatable. Ten horns. There are going to be ten kings. Now, he says why well, I see these ten horns. He says a little horn comes up. Let's read it. So uh, where does it say this? Verse number eight, right? It says, while I was thinking about the horns. So these horns were fascinating to Daniel. I'm thinking about these horns. Before me was another horn, a little horn. And it came up among them. Three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like that of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. So what are we talking about? Write this in. The little horn is the Antichrist. The little horn is the Antichrist. So everybody are reviving at some point in time of the Roman Empire. This time, the Roman Empire is going to have 10 kings or 10 nations. So a few years ago, when the European Union came along, and at one point it had 10 kingdoms in, everybody was like, whoa, there it is. I, I, I don't know. I'm not good on speculating. But at some point, there's going to be this reviving, I think is what the Bible says, of a Roman Empire. Some kind of, somehow they identify with the philosophy. And there's going to be ten kings. But the little horn's going to come along, which is the Antichrist, and it's going to grow stronger and stronger within that. And it's going to take out three of the kings. It says it's going to uproot them. It's going to kill them. It's going to kill three of the kings. And this little horn, it says, has eyes, which means in biblical sim symbolism, this is very clever, extremely intelligent. Now, the book of Revelation talks about this all over the place, and we can't even understand the book of Revelation without the book of Daniel because the two just jive together so much. But at some point, there is always a counterfeit. The devil always seeks to counterfeit the true things of God. And there's going to be this counterfeit Christ, which we call the Antichrist, come along. He's going to promise peace. And for a time, we're told, Daniel says for three and a half years, the book of Revelation of all things says three and a half years, there will be peace. And then he will turn upon the saints and upon Jewish people and oppress them and desecrate the temple, which means at some point there's going to be a temple. Now, you might be saying, John, why does this matter? I tell you all that for one simple reason. All of this matters a lot because if the first four kingdoms, minus the little horn thing we just talked about, which has not happened yet, but if the amazing details of the rise and fall of Babylon, the rise and fall of the Medo-Persian Empire, the rise and fall of Greece, and the rise of the Roman Empire, right? If all of those happened, predicted hundreds of years before it took place, in amazing detail. If all of that happened, wouldn't we then logically assume that the fifth and final kingdom would also happen in amazing detail? Wouldn't that build into our confidence? If we say just logically from secular history, oh my gosh, the Bible says, and he's made these, here's how it'll happen. And he gives a, so wouldn't we then say, okay, so if those first four rose like that, wouldn't we with confidence then say, well, I guess the fifth one's going to happen too. And what does that mean to our faith in God? Let's read about the fifth one, just moments, and then I'm going to make some applications. The fifth kingdom is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The most quoted verse in the book of Daniel in the New Testament comes out of Daniel chapter 7. Comes out of Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to give it, I, I wrote it references down for you, the three other. I'm going to read you the fourth. The fourth reference is from Mark 14, 62. Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, and he's standing this kind of crazy trial before the Sanhedrin. He's standing this trial, and they're questioning him. They say, are you the Messiah? Are you claiming to be the Messiah? 
Because if you are, man, things are going to get really bad. And you know what he quotes back to them? Daniel chapter 7. He says this, Daniel 7. He says it in Mark 14, 16. He says, Jesus says, I am, and you'll see it for yourself, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of the Mighty One, arriving on the clouds of heaven. I said, well, how is he claiming to be Messiah? Well, they asked, you are the Messiah? And he says, I am. But he goes on to say, you're going to see the Son of Man, a title for the Messiah. If you didn't, if you didn't, if you didn't know that, it wouldn't mean anything to you. But when you're a student of the scriptures, you know that that's the title for the Messiah given all over the place. Ah, and he says, you're going to see me arriving. And he knows he's talking. They, they all know this. They know he's talking about Daniel 7, about the arrival of the fifth kingdom. Jesus Christ, when you people argue, he never really claimed to be the Messiah. You can't say that when you're a real student in the Bible, because what you come to is Jesus Christ claimed to be the Messiah all over the place. Wouldn't know that if you're just scanning the Bible. But when you kind of dig down a little bit deeper and you understand, you understand he's claiming to be the Messiah all over the place. And the more we understand that, the stronger we get. Now, I want to give you a piece of an interview from a, a famous person was interviewed. And I'm going to allow you to guess who this famous person was in just a second. And they were asked this question, man, you know, isn't it a little far-fetched to believe that Jesus Christ is the fifth kingdom to come into play right from daniel 7 they weren't asked this exactly they were asked exactly don't you think it's a little far-fetched that jesus christ is the son of god that he's actually divine and here is how this famous person responds that it's on your outline he says no it's not far-fetched for me look the secular response to the christ story always goes like this he was a prophet obviously he was an interesting guy had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius. But actually, Christ does not allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. Who wants to venture guess what famous person ever said that thing? Anybody? C.S. Lewis. That's excellent. Anybody else? That's it. Bono. Right? You can. Who's Bono? Who's Bono? Bono said this in his interview. And he goes on a whole lot more about that. That Bono. Now, listen, it's one thing for me to say it. It's another thing for C.S. Lewis to say it. But when somebody as cool as Bono says it, now we've gone to a whole nother level, haven't we? Bono said that. Because really, what he's tapping into is the fact that Jesus did not claim to be a teacher or a prophet. He made it clear, I am God. I am the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. And because all the other four kingdoms happen in amazing detail, just like I said, you and I can have tremendous confidence that the fifth kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is going to happen just like he said. So we're not rocked by all the bullies of life. That's really cool. Now, here's what I want to talk about in conclusion. How can our confidence grow? Our confidence is going to grow the exact same way Daniel's confidence grows. Because all throughout the book of Daniel, it's growing. I want that. And I think you want that too. I think you would like your confidence in God to grow too. So all the spiritual bullies on your playground of life don't rock you. All the things that you go through. So how can that happen? Well, number one, my confidence grows when I study God's word. Write that in. Now, I know we talk about studying God's word all the time. I want to put a twist on it because you say, oh, man, you say that almost every single week, study God's word. Here's the thing I want you to get interested in here, all right? I want you to look. Look, there are no random things in the Bible. I used to always read the Bible. Well, that's random. It has nothing to do with me. That's, that's, 
you know, okay, we got lions and tigers and bears. All right, woo! You know, here's the thing. There's nothing that's random. All right, so slow down and look a little deeper. Because something to me that years ago seemed random, Daniel chapter 7, lions and beasts with iron teeth, which had, did nothing to my confidence. When I just paused and I said, okay, let's study history. Does this have any connection? All of a sudden, when the connections came together and all the amazing details, I said, ah, wait a minute. Now I get it. That's what I'm asking you to consider doing. To look a little deeper and to consider these things in the Bible, that nothing is random. We see this in Daniel 7, Daniel chapter 8. We'll talk about next week. Oh, not next week. And then because we're doing the Christmas play next week. Sometime in the future, we're talking about Daniel chapter 8. Okay? And what it describes to us is the Greek empire will rise, and out of that empire is going to come somebody who is going to severely oppress the Jewish people for seven years. Exactly. The Bible gives you us an exact number, seven years. Did that happen? It happened. And the Bible predicted that hundreds of years before it happened, and it happened just as the Bible said. And when you realize that, the guy's name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And the whole Maccabean revolt happened. This is history. This is not biblical history. This is just history in the Bible. When you understand that, it gives you great confidence. What is the well, Isaiah says, for 70 years, 100 years before this ever happened, the Jewish people will go into exile, be slaves for 70 years. How long were they slaves? 70 years. When you dig underneath the hood of these things, the details give you confidence. Isaiah says a king will arise. This guy hadn't even been born yet. His name will be Cyrus. And he will rebuild a temple for my people. And so in the book of Ezra, out of the Medo-Persian empire, hundreds of years after, this guy Cyrus comes to power. And he says in the book of Ezra, a pagan king, God has anointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem. This happened. Those kind of details, understand, gives us confidence. And Daniel knew it. Step number two, or thing number two. When I want my confidence to grow in God, I step out in faith. Daniel's doing this all over the place. Stepping out in faith, right? Stepped out in faith in Daniel chapter one with that whole food issue. He steps out. And my point here is, is where is God nudging you to step out in faith? Look, if God is not nudging you somewhere to step out in faith, we have a problem. Because God is always nudging us to step out in faith. Because he knows that's how our confidence in him grows. And us having faith in him. So if you're saying to me, hey, John, God hadn't nudged me to step out in faith in a long time. We, there's a problem. We need to get up after the service and go see the prayer team. We need to say, hey, I'm missing something. I need, you know, I, I need to know where God's nudging me to step out in faith. Because if not, you're just stuck. And this is not good. And your confidence is not going to be strong unless you're stepping out in faith. It's just, it's just reality. And this is what we see with Daniel. God is speaking to you. I guarantee you. There are times in my life when I haven't wanted to listen to God. I might get comfortable where I am. Why do I want to step out in faith anymore? The problem is it eventually has a backlash and my confidence is not strong. Daniel is stepping out in faith all the time. And we need to step out in faith. I said at the beginning of this, you know, every time I get up here on Sunday, the last thing that goes in my head is I can't do this. I cannot do this thing. I cannot preach this sermon. This is not, I'm not comfortable. I don't even like being in the limelight. Look, here I stand, Right? And so God says, you can't, but I can. And so how is it? Where is God nudging you to step out in faith? And, where, and if you do that, if you respond to it, your confidence in God will grow. Christmas Eve, this Christmas Eve, we will celebrate 11 years as a church. 11 years. There are people 
who said when this church began 11 years, it'll never work. I was like one of them. I was the top one. <laughs> My confidence was at all-time low, but for some reason, God said, yes, it's going to work. And I've had people come to me over the years and say, look, you don't have a membership. And they say, your church will never work because you don't have a membership. Some people actually, I had one person get very angry with me one day that we don't collect, we don't pass the offering plate. And they said, this will never work. Okay. But God had something different. There was powerful people against Daniel, but God was for Daniel, not against him. When you step out in faith, we've had people say, you don't have a building. So, look, this is, this, I don't. Wanted this, I don't want you to think that this is some kind of pride fest about the church. That's not what I'm doing. All I'm trying to say is, is there'll be things against you. Somebody told me recently that a new pastor was being interviewed here at a church in Arlington. And they asked the pastor, this guy, they're inter- the pastor asked the people interviewing him for this new church. And he says, were any churches in Arlington growing? And the people on the interview committee says, well, there's a church called Grace Community Church. They're growing. And they said, well, tell me about it. Well, they meet at TJ. He said, ah, that'll never work. They don't have a building. Never work. What's never going to work for you? What's too difficult for you to do? Where are you stepping out in faith? If you can do everything with your life, if you can handle it all, then why do you need to be confident in God? Step out in faith. Study God's word. Step out in faith. Final thing is this. I begin each day with the words of the psalm. 118 verse 24. It says this. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, this is an amazing thing. The 117th Psalm, everybody, is the shortest chapter in the Bible. Okay, got it? The 119th Psalm is the longest chapter in the Bible. The 118th Psalm is basically, arguably, the center of the Bible between the shortest and the longest. And this Psalm, 118, is about what? It's all about one thing, having confidence in God having confidence in God. This verse, this is the day you have made. If we begin every single day of our lives, now that's a nice thing to say, God, this is your day. This is your day. No, I'm saying make it habitual and make it a little stronger. Hey, God, I got this issue I have before me today. This is your day. I'm asking you to solve it. You are large and in charge. How do you want me to make decisions today? How do you want me to speak today? How do you want me to think today? This is your day. This is your kingdom. This is your kingdom. Kristen and I had a big decision to make uh, about a year ago, and we were perplexed by it. We had no idea how to solve this, and we're praying every day, praying, oh, God, show us what, you know, what do we do about this thing? You all remember Snowmageddon last year? Anybody remember Snowmageddon? Unbelievable. I'd never seen anything like it in all my life. We only had like a couple inches of snow, but it locked the city down. People were spent the night in their cars, 4 o'clock in the morning. The place was terrible. Well, on Snowmageddon night, I'm coming home. I think I, I had to park and walk the final like half mile to my house because it's so traffic was so horrendous. And when I walk in the house, there's a couple extra people in our house. And so there was a teacher at my son's school who was trying to get home and was shut down on Gallows Road and so called Krista and said, could we just hang out at your house for a couple hours? Just hang out there for a couple hours until it all lightens up. Well, it never lightened up and they end up spending the night. That's a whole other story. But here's, we've been praying God solved this problem for us. Now, you know this, everybody? The teacher at my son's school had the exact information that was perplexing us so much, and they solved our issue that night. Now, I could give you a million other examples, but when you pray, God, this is your day, this is your day, and you mean it, it's a habit of your life, 
not just a nice thing that you do every now and then. Oh, yeah, that sounds nice, but it's a habit, and you mean it. God will start showing up in amazing details, answering your prayers, and that will build your confidence. I know I need to stop. I want to encourage you. 2012 is right around the corner. God wants you to be confident. God wants you to step out of faith, study his word, begin each day this way. I want to encourage you to take these few moments as we end to talk to God about that. Talk to God about where he's nudging you. Maybe consider visiting our prayer team. Pray with somebody about that. Be serious about it. Just don't get up and walk away. God wants to do something in all of our lives. Daniel's not some person who put his pants on a different way than all of us right here. He was a human being like all of us. But he decided that he was going to take God up on his word. And I'm asking you to consider doing the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for your word. It's wonderful. It's challenging. It's enlightening. It instills confidence in us. Father, I just pray that each one of us would respond to your word in the way that your spirit is prompting and nudging each one of us right now. Some of us have grown hardened, maybe a little embittered. Or there's, there's, there's something in our hearts that is, that is hard. But God, I pray that we would just become flexible at this moment. And we would allow you to soften our hearts and we would respond to you in whatever way. Before we head into 2012 and a new year, that God, we take a running head start into it spiritually. And we say, God, I, okay, here I am. Grow my confidence in you. I'm ready to step out. Father, bless each one of us. We know that you love us. You love us more than we could ever imagine. And you approve of us. Help us today, Father. In Christ's name, amen.